Radio Live. Superpowers. We're here with Kfir Damari, COO of Tabuki, and most importantly, the guy who landed a spaceship from the moon just recently. Kfir, how are you? Great. How are you? We're good. Thank you. So how does it feel like to be one of those people who actually reached the moon? Uh, it's amazing. You know, there are a lot of things that happened since then. Uh, a lot of support that we got from, you know, the Israeli public and I would say even the world. Um, so, so it's good. A lot of people trying to reach out, so it's uh, been hectic, uh, but uh, I would say amazing. Yeah. Why are they trying to reach out, like to hear the story? To hear the story, to invite us to give lectures, to, you know, to be part of this and to be part of, you know, uh, we already announced that we are planning to build another spacecraft, Bereshit uh, 2. So, uh, so some people are talking about Bereshit 1, some people want to talk about Bereshit 2, And this is because uh, the spaceship didn't actually land on the moon. To me, this is semantics. I don't see why this matters. But the spaceship didn't land on the moon. It crashed on the moon. So that means that to, this means to you and to some other people that you didn't fulfill your mission, right? So I would, if, to, to be accurate, we, we landed, just hard landed. Okay. <laughs> some people can say crashed. Uh, but uh, we've reached the moon in a speed of one kilometer per second. Uh, and yes, our, our goal, our hopes were to soft land on the moon, but I think that uh, our major goal was to reach the moon. Uh, just by doing that, we've already created the history. Uh, we've made Israel the first, the, the, sorry, the seventh country in the world to achieve the, uh, such thing. And we're also the first uh, private organization to ever reach the moon. So uh, we've done history. We were hoping to also have soft land. Who cares, though? Why does that matter? It's a good question. Uh, you know, it would make us the, first, uh, the fourth country in the world to, to do that uh, and the first private organization to do that. But basically, as you said, you know, that's just uh, the numbers. And we were hoping also to get more scientific mission, scientific data. So we did mm. gather scientific data while we were descending. Uh, but not all the data that we were hoping uh, to get. Why is it so difficult? Like, why are there only seven guys? Uh, like... Seven superpowers, you know? Yeah, why is it difficult? Um, it's difficult because I can say it's rocket science, basically. <laughs> uh, but there are a few reasons for that. One reason, I think one of the major reasons, is that things in space must work on the first time. Like, if something doesn't work on Earth, you can go and kick it, and maybe it will work or fix it, And in space, you don't have any second chances. What you've done when you build the spacecraft is like all the efforts that you put in, these are all the efforts that will be put in. You cannot go and do something else. And this, for that reason, you know, we try to avoid moving parts so they won't stuck. And there's a great story about, you know, uh, solar panels that were sent for the International Space Station, you know, a uh, huge mission, and they took the, the solar panels, they connected to the, uh, to the station, and they didn't open. So they had to have, like, an astronaut going uh, to a spacewalk and with a hammer hitting it, and then it opened, basically. And uh, so usually you don't have that uh, 
opportunity and things must work on the first time. This is why it's really, really, really hard. The second reason is that the environment is also hard. Uh, you, uh, your, you know, your spacecraft, your satellite, everything that is basically in space need to endure both uh, like extreme heat, extreme cold, a uh, vacuum. Like the, the environment is really not easy. Even on the moon itself, you know, the, um, the dust on the moon uh, is uh, magnetically charged and can destroy any me- mechanical uh, mechanism from within. Uh, Wait, what does that mean? If you have, for example, a rover, okay. the dust will get into all, between all those moving parts right. and can destroy them from within. How? First of all, you have a lot of dust on the moon. Okay. And, and also, the dust is like really hard grains. Okay. So basically, just, you know. And this is all knowledge that you acquired uh, after you decided that you want to get to the moon, right? Yes. Basically, my background personally is more uh, cyber security. And this is what I also do. Are there are a lot of attacks in the book. <laughs> a lot of cybersecurity attacks. Yeah, uh, we also had to, you know, uh, <laughs> maintain our uh, security, uh, which we can also speak about. <laughs> uh, so not on the moon, but on the organization. Right. And uh, we also had some attacks that we needed. Uh, so on space, yeah. Mm, yes. Okay. <laughs> how did you do this uh, cybersecurity to landing on the moon? Uh, so it's not really uh, cybersecurity for landing on the moon, although some people try to connect those things together. Monetized. Yes. Uh, so it's still different uh, parts of my life, but I think what connects them is wanting uh, to do to solve really hard problems. And if we're talking about space, so space in general is really hard. And uh, this is, uh, you know, I gave a few examples why, but this is basically the reason that a lot of innovation came out of space. Uh, for example, the way uh, you know, we build roads today was designed um, by NASA for the space shuttle. Uh, the covers that we have on our glasses uh, to make sure we don't have uh, scratches was also designed for astronauts. Even green coffee uh, basically is, uh, was designed to prepare uh, food for astronauts. So a lot of things we have today in our life were actually an outcome from you know, a big challenge that they have to solve in space and they had to invent new technologies and then they looked at that technology and saw that we can actually use it in our daily life. Would you say, well, yeah. by the way, that anything that, like, that is, yeah, like a lot of inventions are because of like survival, let's say, in complex environments? Like historically, not only space, like before space, it was, I don't know, uh, swamps and mosquitoes or, or uh, going for boats from country to country. So each of those uh, uh, big challenges actually made the greatest inventions. So, so I think it's it challenges and I think it's necessity. Uh, you know, it's space for one hand, but even when people ask me why in Israel we have so much innovation, so my answer to this is because we have no change. We have no other choice. Right. Like we have to invent things because we don't have, you know, so many resources. We have limited resources. We have to use our mind to find, you know, amazing solutions to to, to solve the scenario we're in. It gets from. I have to ask you a philosophical question here. Yeah. Do you think in the world today, the world of technology, most inventions are superficial because people are very comfortable, as opposed to doing things that are. Uh, of 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 global value that are big challenges like landing on the moon, like Elon Musk living on Mars, which are bigger challenges. So the inventions today, let's say 
uh, you know, Instagram as opposed to uh, landing on the moon, is it? Do you feel that we don't have as many challenges globally that help us make things that are technology for big value or the bigger picture, as opposed to exit strategies and superficial ideas? So I think that the challenges are there. Uh, you know, the the UN declared, I think, it's 21 goals, you know, of uh, that they want to solve things they want to solve in the world. I think the challenges are there. Uh, why people decide to devote their life to uh, do, uh, uh, you know, Snapchat or instead of solving them, I think it's in a way a, a personal, you know, preference. Uh, yeah. Yes, but I think, like, if I take myself, for example, I don't know if it's an example I need to think about it like in a general perspective, but... No, but tell us about you. But it's not that rewarding from a financial way to land on the moon. It's like for our story, you know, we decided to be a nonprofit. Uh, we decided because that's what felt right. We felt that it's not our spacecraft. It belongs to everyone in, in Israel. And so we decided to do that and to make sure that we'll also have like future spacecraft. So a lot of our efforts were in education. We've reached more than a million kids and inspired them to, to go and study science and technology. Uh, but on a personal level, you know, it was a nonprofit and we didn't earn a lot of money out of it. Right. And so I think that in a way, people that developed Snapchat earned a lot of more money than what we did, but we solved a bigger problem. I think it's, it's actually an interesting thing. If you look at a lot of organization and social entrepreneurs, you will see that they're not, most of them, yeah, some people, you know, are able to combine those two together, but most of them, you know, the reward is not financial, the right. reward is, you know, for their, their heart, they can become bigger, uh, but... Uh, so what, what is the end game for, for Space IL? It's a good question. Space IL basically, you know, Maurice Kahn, our chairman, announced that we're going to build Belichie 2. And right now we're trying to understand what does this mean, like how much money, how much time do we actually need. We didn't have a plan uh, already. So now, right now we're focusing on that and we're uh, continuing to make sure that kids will continue to uh, be inspired from space and from uh, science in general and go to but, study. But would you say like the organization is to inspire people to be scientists and technology masters in space or is it we want to land in Jupiter and build a new civilization? So when we started the vision was to inspire kids to not just uh, space uh, science in general, to inspire them to go and pursue their dreams and to understand that in order to make those dreams into reality like create a, a follow effect here Yes, right, right now we're calling it the sheet effect but basically uh, that was where, what we were looking at and today we are thinking, you know, we realize that we are the first non-governmental organization to achieve such a mission. And we are looking at the possibility to build more spacecrafts. IEI also offered, you know, a German company that they will build their spacecraft. Basically, today, right now in Israel, in space sale and the Israeli aerospace industries, we have the, the know-how of how to build you know, smaller and, sub and, and lighter satellites than anywhere in the world. And we're thinking about how we can actually take it to the next level. Uh, but 
you know, you don't have a lot of customers. Right. So you have NASA, you have the European Space Agency. No, in countries probably, satellites. Satellites, yes. When I'm talking about spacecraft right now to reach the moon. Oh, okay. You have a limited, you know, numbers of potential clients. I want to go uh, back, though, a bit. Yeah. I mean, not a bit, but almost a decade ago, I would say. So you were on a path to dealing with cybersecurity as your career? Yes. That was what you were aiming for? Mm-hmm. And then... Tell me about that moment when you suddenly realized that you want to do something bigger. Was it the same moment that you decided it's going to be the spaceship, or was it a different moment, and then the spaceship just landed right, landed, see what I did there, right in there with what you're steadily wishing for? Like, how did this evolve for you? So I had, like, all of my friends from the Army, uh, the intelligent forces, had their own startup. I had uh, an idea for my startup. Uh, actually friends of mine just raised, raised a million dollars from Eric Schmidt for something similar and hmm. uh, they offered me to join in uh, and then I saw Yariv's post uh, we also had Yariv as a guest uh, on our podcast yes. and he said who wants to go to the moon I told him if you're serious I'm in and this is how it started so did you did you think he was serious I thought he's serious yes yeah. Uh, you know, for some reason, like, it didn't sound too odd to me that, uh, you know, landing on the moon sounds like, yeah, it's a cool mission. Do you think you are going to the moon or do you think no, it's no, no. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, my grandmother... Would you, by the way, go, go to, to the, the moon? Uh, I might, but uh, on a personal level, I would make sure that I can come back because our spacecraft uh, was not... <laughs> yeah, it's not be. very inspiring to yes. take yourself on it right now. No, there, there are a lot of people that uh, are aim- aiming to go, for example, to Mars and not come back. Just stay there. Right, right. right now, I have my family here <laughs> on Earth. And no, I, but if, if the yes. idea was going to the moon, spending a few years there probably, mm-hmm. and coming back... Relocation. Well, yeah, really yeah. Sounds good, yeah. I think so. Would you like the family? No, but no family, no family. No family? Like NASA style. NASA style, you know, NASA, I think the longest time was a year. A year. Would you do it? I might. You might. Yeah. Okay. If I know that I can come back, I would uh, probably do uh, something like that. Okay, fair enough. I wasn't like, when I was little, I wasn't like space geek. And I, even today, people, like, I know today a lot of things about space engineering, but people assume that I know all, you know, the different stars and, you know, the constellations. And I don't. So what set your heart <laughs> on this? It was mainly because it's an impossible mission. And to make it, like, to make it happen... This is what I was hoping for, like to do that. And, you know, the other part was the impact, the impact on Israel. Later on, we translated that into impact on education. But to do something big for Israel, to do something big for the world, to take an impossible mission and show that it's possible. Did you feel confident that you could do it? For some reason, I think I did. All the time? We did. It's not that all the time, like, we knew that, uh, or I knew that we're going to succeed. There are a lot of things that, you know, we could have just, you know, next week we might close the the organization and that's it. But it doesn't seem out of reach. There was a few countries that did it before. Like, did that feel that it's more true? Like, I'll ask you a hypothetical question. If there were no countries that did it before, would you feel it's achievable? was much harder to believe in that. Although, you know, in the beginning, we were planning to do that in a spacecraft in the size of a Coke bottle, and that will cost us around $8 million, right. which is something that was never done before. Although the spacecraft now is much bigger and uh, costs $100 million. Uh, by the way, I'm sure Coca-Cola would actually sponsor that. We tried once, oh, okay. yes, but it was like early beginning. 
So, so tell me about the conversation that you had with Yariv when you realized that you want to at least hear about this. Like, how did this go down? So I told him, if you're serious, I'm in. We're texting on Facebook. And uh, then we've met, the three of us, uh, Yariv, Yonatan, and myself. And we just, like, met the three of us uh, in a pub in the city of Hulon. And we started thinking about how it's going to look like. Basically, we're aiming to use a nanosatellite technology. This is why we're aiming to build a spacecraft that was around 10 or 10 or 30 centimeters, uh, really, really small, using you know, new technologies. Uh, but when we actually started to do the engineering, uh, we could not find a fuel tank that can fit in and have enough energy to take us all the way to the moon and land. So we had to build a bigger spacecraft. But you're running forward again. So yes. I'm still trying to understand like how you made the decision, okay, we're going for this. I mean, you all had, did you have day jobs or did you just like, were you in some sort of... So uh... I was a lecturer in a college in Israel. Uh-huh. Uh, and I, as I said, I was planning to open my startup. So, you know, on a personal level, I was ready to build, you know, a startup. I didn't think it would be a nonprofit. I thought <laughs> it would be a for-profit organization. Uh, but uh, when I heard, you know, about that idea, I just said, it, it sounds amazing and I must be part of it. So what sacrifice did you have to make? Basically, you know, going into the project, um, first of all, you know, I quit my job. Uh, As a lecturer? Also, yeah, after six months. Look, when we started, we were aiming to land by the end of 20, 2012. Okay, like and this was when? Beyond the moon. Two years. It was, yeah, it was the end of 2010 when we sat down in the up and uh, we we're aiming to build a spacecraft landed by in two years it, it didn't look like a big sacrifice it didn't really look like such you know it's a challenge because you know uh, we're doing something much smaller and lighter than everything anything that was before us but you know people already reached the moon so we're doing this, this better and i think we didn't realize how complex it's actually going to be uh, i think you know if we knew that it's going to be so complex will take us more than eight years, a hundred million dollars. I don't know if we'd decide to actually start with it. So what was the moment that you realized, okay, this is not going to take two years and I'm actually losing confidence, if at all? It, it took us a while, uh, first of all, to actually go into the engineering and understand what it's going to look like. Actually, you can say it took us around six years to actually understand how the spacecraft is going to be because they didn't grow only once it happened around four times from one fuel tank to two fuel tanks to four fuel tanks to bigger fuel four fuel tanks and each and every time you know we saw that we don't have enough fuel and we needed bigger fuel tanks but the issue is that for every kilo you take with you to the moon you need four kilos of fuel so even when uh, fuel tanks became bigger, they became heavier. So now we needed more fuel just to take the, uh, the fuel tanks. Basically, if you look at the final design, the final design is around uh, more than 400 kilos of uh, fuel. Uh, and the rest, the 160 uh, kilos, is the spacecraft, but most of it is the fuel tanks and what's holding them together. Basically, we have really small amount of electronics. Most of it is the fuel and the fuel system and the fuel so it didn't happen once it happened a lot of times and so it was always every technical time, every time there was sort of a breaking point it was technical 
And most of those... Was it ever financial? How much did it cost, by the way, the whole project? A hundred million dollars. And uh, it was technical, but we also had financial issues because every time the spacecraft became bigger, we needed more money. It would take us more time. Who are the investors besides horse? So first of all, it's not investors, it's donors. Donors. Uh, it took us a while to remember that. But uh, we have, of course, Morris Khan, we have the Edelson family, uh, we have uh, Sylvan Adams, uh, uh, Schusterman uh, family, uh, Sami Segol, Mini Circuit. Why? why? Like, why, why would they, like, uh, was it all on, on, the, on the notion of the data? Like, they wanted an impact. They didn't want, probably, just to say, okay, we have a, a spaceship on the moon, right? They wanted something to help the community, right? So their end goal would be, like they put the donation because they thought the return on the donation would be inspiration for the children? So I think they had uh, basically three reasons. But uh, some people looked at the technology, the fact that we're building smaller and lighter satellite, uh, lighter uh, spacecraft than anything that was designed until today. And you know that excited them, that we're doing something new to the world, basically showing, we're breaking the last thing, we're showing that with the same amount of resources, you can, like humanity, can go and reach uh, like 10 times more places than what we've reached before. Uh, so on one aspect was the technology, another aspect was education, to inspire kids to go inside the STEM, to show them that science and technology is exciting. If you go back, people looked at uh, Albert Einstein, for example, uh, as a hero. Uh, kids looked at him as a, as a hero. Today, we don't have a lot of heroes that are scientists, that are engineers, uh, and we're basically, this is what we're aiming for, to get our engineers out there and to tell their story and to show that, you know, they can they come from different backgrounds and to show kids what does it mean that a spacecraft is rocket science, but they can understand how to build it and they can understand that they have a real potential of building future spacecraft. So some people you know, were excited from that. And the third part, I think, was Israel. People that were excited put the Israeli flag on the moon. The Edelson family added the, the phrase, Am Yisrael Chai. And uh, you know, to show that the Jewish people survived. And Israel is a strong nation. Superpowers, we say, reach the moon. So right. we're the smallest superpower to ever reach the moon. Nice. You started three founders, right? Yes. And then by the time we landed on the moon, I'm mm-hmm. saying we because that's the impact that mm-hmm. Space has, that it's us as a nation. Uh, how many people were you? Uh, we, we were like 40 full-time employees in Space Sail, and now there are 40 in the Israeli Aerospace Industries, and a few more people in the Weizmann Institute. And I think that was the core team. Besides that, uh, we had hundreds of volunteers. Some of them in the engineering, but most of them in the educational aspects of the project, uh, going into classrooms and uh, talking with kids and telling us and telling them our story. And like, how far along this journey were you guys asked to sort of step back a bit and let more experienced managers do it? As happens a lot. So it, it did happen after around I think five years into the project. You know, both both you know from. One angle, we got married and we had kids. And as I said, you know, uh, we didn't earn a lot of money. I can say that from when we started to that moment, my bank account went down only a bit. Uh, so it was also from a personal perspective. But yes, we realized that we need to bring, you know, professional uh, managers into uh, the project. And I think 
the organization had a lot of changes because of that. You know, it got us to the moon. Uh, Iran did the first change where, where basically when we started, most of the organization was volunteers. Even the, the engineering, everything was volunteering. Uh, then we, we realized that we needed a core team of full-time employees uh, to manage it. And then uh, still, most of the actual engineering was done by volunteers. When Iran came, he did like the first big change, with, which was everyone in the project need to be on the payroll and dedicated for the project. So that's one big change that, that happened. And in that phase, we're around, uh, you know, we had basically the understanding of how the space stuff is going to look like after all those uh, growth. Were you okay with it? Were you, I mean, honestly, did you feel a bit like somebody's taking your baby? Uh, it is my baby. It's still my baby. Uh, yes, it felt, uh, I would say it's like taking your kid the first time to kindergarten and having someone else taking care of it <laughs> and, you know, just going away to work or home and just knowing he's out there, but you don't really know what's happening with him. Uh, although you know I still stayed for a year in full time when you know the CEO came but it was it was different yes so why did you leave after a year I felt that most of the things I could do in the organization I already did like it's not that I left totally you know I'm still part of the organization actually today I'm actually full-time again in the organization but um, so I, I still was connected to the project but I needed first of all to make sure that I have some money for my family also. And I think you also maybe diversify a lot, right? Like, I don't think maybe you feel like you can do one thing. I think I never do one thing. Right? Yes. I, uh, you know, even today, you, know, you have Space AL, you have the startup. I'm the startup is Tabuki. The startup is So we want to use you to tell us about that in a minute. But mm-hmm. what else? Uh, I'm volunteering in the local uh, city, like Bad. So um, helping other projects. And, and this always was always for you like that? Like you were always doing a lot of things? Yes. I think it's a lot of, because of my curiosity. I want to know how things work and I'm really interested in solving problems. So when I hear about interesting problems, I want to be part of you know, solving them. Yeah. Uh, which in you know, from some aspects, it's amazing because I get to do a lot of things. Even as a, you know, personally, I started like people in space, I really excited that I started programming at the age of six. And um, but if you look at what I've done, I like I manage also uh, the operations, uh, like legal, finance, marketing, uh, education. Like a friend of mine told me, now he's uh, also my co-founder in Tabuki, that the founder is just like a stem cell. Uh, you need to be prepared to become whatever the organization needs you to be. Uh, and in a way, this is what I see myself. You know, one time I had a title uh, which was business development, and we were laughing that part of the time I was doing business and part of the time I was doing actual development. You know, coding <laughs> the system. Uh, so uh, yes, like I do a lot of stuff. Sometimes I enjoy it. Sometimes I ask myself, should I not focus on something, uh, on one specific thing, and be you know like the number one in the world in, but I think I'm, I'm really good in solving whatever problem. So, like, uh, about, about the solving problems, yes. it, sounds, it sounds like we're sort of feeding on your superpower there. Okay. Okay? Uh, it's usually things, you know, superpowers come from things that you love usually. So, mm-hmm. how, like, how did you find out that you like to solve problems? From when I was little. You know, how? I don't know if it's building things from Lego and understanding how you do that or if it's building... Uh, 
taking upon myself all kind of challenges. Okay, taking upon yourself, like like I, I, I understand. So Lego is is, is a problem solving, but it's building through. It's a building process. Solving problems for me, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong right here. Uh, it's also something social as well. So let's say you have five friends, mm-hmm. because this is something that you, you saw that happen to you. You have five friends, and you are the go-to guy to solve something complex, like how do we get into school to play soccer? And, you know, you had to solve it, or was it only through programming? And So when I was little, I think it's a lot about, it was a lot about solving problems with myself and, like, thinking about problems and solving them. I think the big change became... Uh, when I was in high school with the scouts, actually, right. uh, when I became like a teacher in the scouts, uh, and uh, it really changed, like opened me out. And I think from that moment, from that moment, even if I'm looking at things I've done in uh, Space AL, in, in Tabuki, you know, in other uh, startups that I founded, like MetaPocket, uh, I'm really interested in building today organizations that solve problems because uh, we're talking about superpowers. In order to solve really hard problems, you need more than one superpower. Uh, And I think what's interesting for me is to be able to build a group, to build an organization, to get all those superpowers together in order to actually solve the problem. Right, like building the superpower team for that specific problem. Exactly. And and you have an advantage of of getting those people or or looking at them or finding them or it's a good question i think i don't know how to like exactly describe that but i think something that like the three of us i think had was the ability to get people on board like to get them excited uh, you know we took phd uh, students and uh, and doctors and you know engineers with uh, 20 years of uh, experience and we'll tell them come work for us, and you know, back then we didn't have money, right. and we just told them, you know, we are giving you whatever the, the, the salary that the CEO is getting, you're getting, but you know, come be part of this amazing project, and we're able to, to get them into the project. To, yeah, that means maybe people also believe in you. People believed in us, people you know, were inspired from the story, were inspired about, from you know, the big vision, I think, and uh, I think that was a big thing that, that we did. You, you know, no, I spoke about sacrifice. It sounds to me here that you're the type of person that this project was built for you. Meaning, like, there wasn't even a thought. Like, you know, I tried to ask a few times, uh, what was the pivot moment that you tried to decide what sacrifice? I think this challenge, as a challenge, as a problem solver, was the most complex. It's one of the most complex problems right now, I think, universally. You know, it's like people who are or touching that is like Elon Musk or Richard Branson, you know, like to get someone like fear say, okay, yeah, this is a big challenge. You know, as a problem solver, I want to solve this problem. Like what's the next thing that's going to get you hooked? Like, <laughs> is it going to be hard for you to get it hooked to a bigger challenge? There is something amazing about, you know, the challenge in space AL and, you know, how public what's it is. What's bigger? It's like that world hunger, you know, fusion uh, energy, like, <laughs> you're, you're done. Longevity. Yeah, it's like, uh, what, what do you do for, for adrenaline, that next one? So, uh, it's a good question. First of all, Space Hell is still here, so I still have that. <laughs> of course. Right. Uh, I realized in, you know, balancing my life, I don't need just adrenaline. 
is that are also you know trying to solve problems that people actually want to pay for, as we talked about in the beginning, because people don't really want to pay for. Which, which that is, is that Kabuki? Kabuki is developing a decentralized uh, cyber insurance platform. Uh, basically, what we've, we've started is a cyber uh, solution that can protect anything, any digital asset that is controlled by a computer. It can be crypto assets, for example. It can be command and control channels for drones or uh, for satellites or uh, updates for autonomous uh, cars. And so basically what we are able to do is to use blockchain technology in order to build a new type of cybersecurity solution. And what we realized when talking with customers that what they really want is to sleep good at night. So what we're offering basically, we're offering, we're buying the risk from them. We're saying that the, the solution works so good that if you know you lose your money, we'll give your money back. And we're basically offering, uh, you can call it insurance, you can call it warranty. Uh, and it's the first time that you know a cyber uh, security company actually stands behind the product. Because but wait, 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 wait. Yeah. This okay? You're giving them their money back for your services, but not for their loss. For the loss, I mean. Interesting notion. Let me try to explain it, see if I'm right. I'm usually wrong. So it goes like this. What you're saying is you are actually offering insurance for cybersecurity. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is it your cybersecurity product or is it others? Ours. Yours. So you're insuring. So, okay, this is amazing. So what's interesting about this is, is the business model. Mm-hmm. Because what you're saying is I'm still doing cybersecurity like other people. Mm-hmm. Okay. I feel that my product is 100% guaranteed. Instead of telling them 100% guaranteed or your money back, okay, as uh, you know, the classic. Usually they don't, you don't even get your money back. You don't even get your money back. What you're saying is take it, okay, I'm selling it in the insurance model, meaning if anything happens, I 100% protect you. Okay, and that's on money issues only. Like, is it cybersecurity also for information? So the fir- this is why uh, the first product we did is for money, uh, but basically also for command and controls and uh, updates for autonomous cars. The technology, like, but how do you ensure that? Like, so, what, so right, right what's now, the collateral? Right now we're building that, but basically, you know, it will be part of the agreement. So if something, you know, and. For each uh, thing that might happen, you will get uh, this amount of money. Nice. Okay. And on the, on the money issue, um, uh, like, where, where are we on the startup right now? Like, is it? Uh, we have been uh, running for the last year. We've developed uh, the technology. Right now, we're in private beta for the financial solution. Okay. So it's uh, it's like without the clients yet, but but uh, like uh, we, like we have a few clients right now. But... And is it all? Is it blockchain technology or is it? economy blockchain so it's blockchain technology basically what we saw is that using blockchain technology you can build things you could not build before right and uh, you can actually remove central points of failure uh, because if you, if you would do the same thing that we do today but you do that in a with a centralized server someone can just hack into your server right and you know change the your code so you cannot really protect anyone if you're using centralized solutions. Right, right. And uh, on that sense, you're not building the economy around blockchain, right? The solution itself is uh, just using blockchain you right. know, as a building block. And we are thinking about opening this decentralized uh, cyber insurance platform for other people to offer uh, insurance upon our system. And this will be open as actually, you know, uh, not just blockchain uh, 
solution, but basically also you know, we'll have some kind of token within the system, but that's in the future. What are a few insights that you've learned from your journey in Space.io that you're bringing here now uh, as a more mature entrepreneur to this venture? I think to ask a lot of questions, that's one thing, uh, and not to be afraid of asking questions, because a lot, I think a lot of times uh, uh, as a entrepreneur in the beginning, you have some gut feeling, but you're not sure it. And it takes you a while to actually understand and, and actually speak out. And, and what you should do is speak out much earlier. Why don't you speak, speak out? Because you feel like you don't want to sound like an idiot? You don't want to feel sound like an idiot. You're not sure what you're thinking. You know, you don't have a lot of experience. And, and I think, you know, to speak out, whatever you have something on your mind, with your gut tells you you should, and just speak out and talk about it. It's okay to talk about it. It's funny that you learned that. You learned that from Space IL to ask a lot of questions. Because if you didn't ask a lot of questions in Space IL and you're just, you know, overconfident of building a spaceship and going to the moon, that would be that would be exciting to see. Like So tell us about a time that you didn't ask a question in Space IL and it cost you. You learned this is a this is a lesson that you learned from experience. That yeah. when you didn't ask. I think, you know, a lot of things in a lot of times in space sale, you know, I told you that space roof grew. Sometimes like, you know, from that one specific aspect, but like we had a gut feeling that will tell us that tells us that, you know, it won't fit, it won't work. We need to maybe to do something different. But it took us much longer to actually realize that than to actually speak about it. So then you did what you did was not ask the questions and just let things roll in a way? You know, eventually they got to the point that it was clear enough you can speak about it. But uh, we could knew much earlier and, mm-hmm. uh, and hopefully save time. So don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to hear what your guts is saying and uh, speak it out. What else? I think I learned a lot about people. What? Uh, how to engage people. You know, if you're talking about space sale, and we like to call it a philanthropic space startup, but the philanthropic part and the fact that we were a nonprofit meant that we needed to work with volunteers. And getting volunteers to actually work for you is a big challenge because they don't really owe you anything. They do that just because they connect to their cause and they connect personally to you. And so I think I learned about a lot about leadership and how to engage people through that. Because, again, anyone that managed uh, and was like, successfully managed a group of volunteers has usually higher leadership skills than anyone else. Because of course, because, because money, money is, 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 is an incentive where, where it's easier to manage people. Mm-hmm. Like you, when you're managing someone for the bigger cause, it's enough that you get a little aggravated and you know you can say fuck it I'm not doing this or I don't like the person who's leading Space IL right now because he's whatever and uh, and they can leave like anything in it as an excuse to get aggravated but it's also in the small things they have to feel appreciated you have to make them feel like part of the group like in a good way and what a mega leader when you do that and pay you, you pay and you do that. Think about, think about things in the world that are volunteer-based. Every revolution or every, any, any person who's trying to get voted for, it's like the big things, okay? And the bigger base you have of volunteers, okay, is the bigger base you are as a leader, okay, as opposed to being a manager. Yeah, I agree 100%. What an amazing combination of being able to get the people behind you 
and get them to feel like they're completely on board with you and also pay them. Yep. My, my dad once, uh, uh, on a side note, he, he bought me my first uh, instruments. It was a, a piano and drums and stuff like that. I was really into music. But he brought me the shittiest piano and the worst drums ever. And uh, the excuse was, if you're good at that, imagine how great you're going to sound with really good drums. Exactly. So I love that. If you can do what you're doing right yes. now with those volunteers and manage afterwards, I'm sure that helps the skills. And the other way around, it's also interesting because those people that when you treat them and get them engaged, they're actually the most devoted people in the right. organization. Exactly. Uh, so it, even if it, as you said, if it's a, a non-profit, if it's a for-profit, if you're actually trying to reach out to those people to get them engaged and not just tell them what to do uh, because they have to, uh, they really become devoted to your goal and trying to help you in any way they can. And I would say the, the secret here is to get the team to buy into the story. And I don't mean that in a manipulative way. Yeah, but, but this is why I won't say buy into yeah, the maybe. story, but like be part of the story. Like, really believe it. The, the, one of the reasons that people want to be part of it is because their name will be part of the story. And it's not only the, the belief, like people want to be part of the revolution, not help the revolution happen. Uh, it's not just because their name will be part of it. It's because they will be part of something bigger. Right. That's I agree. Fair enough. I agree. It's like not the credit. It's being a part of something bigger than yourself. Fair and just think about there's so many people that took part in Space IL uh, that feel like such... Like, like they're so such part of something so much bigger than themselves, and I don't. I think many of them like nobody knows their name, sure. and I think they're cool with it. Yes, although I'm trying to open a project that will get all the people that were involved, like to build an alumni network for uh, space. <laughs> uh, oh, hang on, it's not over yet. Yes, no, but I mean for Bellishit one. Okay. Yes, uh, but I think something that really connects to that, uh, which I think I, I really learned how to give people the space to do what they dream. Uh, and I think it, it's, you know, part, it's part of how you get them to be part of the story, to be part of the vision and mission, is when they have ideas, you're not automatically saying no. You usually say yes. And I can tell you that in Space AL, we said yes a lot of times. Sometimes too much. Like we eventually said yes to things we could not really handle and they had to like close in the future. But I think we try to give everyone that have, you know, some kind of idea, some kind of, you know, inspiration to do something for, for the organization that connects to what we're doing. We allow them to do that. I can attest to that. And I think it taps into two of the points. So I was volunteering in Space IL for over a year and I'm still sort of involved, but in the background. Uh, and before I, I started, uh, you interviewed me and you were doing, you're really trying to scare me. Like, this is a big commitment. You were trying to make me understand that just because it's volunteering, it doesn't mean that I'm not committing to something very big and important. And then once I was in, you really let me spread my wings and do whatever I thought would make sense. So, yeah, it's, it's, he's not lying. It's actually the way that it goes down, and I'm sure that that's improved but, but, dramatically. But, but that actually allowed us to do so many things because when you have people that are engaged and when they connect to your vision, when they understand the vision, and when you allow them to do whatever they dream, you can actually do so many things in parallel. Even, you know, the educational mission, like all the educational team started with this, another conversation, just like when I had with you, uh, with someone called Mali. And I told them that I have a dream to build an educational team that will go and do lectures. And she took it upon herself and, and done so many amazing things. 
I think you know there were a lot of different aspects in different parts of the project and uh, that we just allowed people to go with their uh, vision uh, personal vision and and it became eventually a, an important part of the organization and you've become a sort of brand in some circles so you've getting you're getting a lot of media attention especially since the landing slash crashing I like to call it landing I'm sorry I don't think mm-hmm. it matters at all uh, and I think over the years you've been getting getting gaining more and more attention so how does that feel did you want it I have two parts to that answer one I'll tell you a story about that the first time I gave a lecture and in the end of that lecture in a city called Lanana around 40 kids came to shook my hand and uh, one of them asked for my autograph <laughs> it was the first time in my life that someone asked for my autograph and, and it was you know amazing on a personal level but when I looked at it and when I told that story again I said that you know it wasn't me you know the fact that you Me or anyone else could stand on the on, a, on stage and say hi I'm an engineer okay so for me it was hi I'm fear I'm an engineer and then that kid came and asked for the autograph this is what we're trying to do we're trying to get engineers as role models for those kids so I think a lot of you know what we're getting all the uh, publicity and impact and you know it's it's not personally about ourselves it is. Even LeBron James, you know, mm-hmm. best basketball player in the world, he has a team of people that help him get, you know, he's the spaceship, you know, but there's a team around him, engineers of health and, you know, that train him and help him get to great. There's no big superstar without his team. I think, I think what, what's beautiful about it is it's turning the engineers into rock stars. That's the only difference. It's a team and a superstar. It's the only thing that if you're saying is that, The superstardom of being an engineer, which was, you know, Henry Ford or Albert Einstein or any of these amazing people that were there, there used to be rock stars. Today, they're not in a bad way, maybe in a bad way, but they're Mark Zuckerberg, right? Yeah. Which is, you know, social network fluffiness as opposed to greater matters. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, those yeah. are the rock stars. Maybe Elon Musk is the closest thing that we have uh, to call of an engineer superstar, but there has to be more of that. And it doesn't matter if they're asking him for an autograph or anybody else, but as long as he's an engineer that they're asking an autograph from, it makes it cool to be, um, to, to be part of things that are complex or uh, not cool yeah. 10 years ago to do. And I but, think uh, that mindset, uh, also that humble mindset, because I think that's a humble mindset. It helped you deal with what you experience, you and, and a lot of the team experiences failure. Again, in a place where I think there was no failure, because when I spoke to you after the not so uh, smooth landing, crash <laughs> after you crushed it, yeah. <laughs> you failure. We so you did and you that. told me something that stayed with me, like you told me uh, that you feel like this is a huge lesson also um, that for for the kids that you're trying to inspire, that things don't go smoothly. We didn't think about it before after after <laughs> it's we, a great spin yes <laughs> no really so i I was in conversation and one you know one uh, guy told me yeah you you succeeded in ninety five percent of you know the mission, and the guy next to him told him, no, no, you succeeded in a hundred and five percent of the mission because uh you know if we would southland in a way uh people will probably do like and move on much easily. There's no such thing as bad publicity, you're saying. <laughs> no, it, it's not just bad publicity. The fact that we crashed made kids cry. 
And, you know, and that's a great thing. <laughs> <laughs> because the next thing that they did is they went to their parents, they went to the educators and started speaking with them about success, started speaking with about failure. We got like, like deep conversation about the fact in order to succeed, you need to go through a lot of failures that, you know, no one would talk, talk about if we just succeed and it looks like easy, like developing an app or landing on the moon. Right, right. And, and in a way... You humanized it. It, it humanized it. It got people more engaged, you know, in a personal level, an emotional level. It got people to speak about, you know, the process that you need to go through in order to succeed. And it got kids to say, don't worry, we land on the moon. We actually got, before we said we're going to be, build Bereshit 2, we got videos of kids that built, you know, <laughs> in their house, they built Bereshit 2. And messages that uh, now after we crashed, they know that they know what they want to do. And, 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 and by the way, you opened up a project called Bereshit 2. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> I feel like it's one of those kids that comes home crying because they got a 95 on the test. No, I, I, I actually get it because I, I remember at me seeing it and I'm not involved in any way in space, NL, although, you know, I follow it a lot. And it's, uh, um, it pissed me off. You know, like not in a bad way I want to bring to it, but I'm like, uh, you know, shit, we, like, uh, we did it. But it's so annoying that now the, you know, the nuances is, again, so I, I totally get it. And I'm not the 95 person. No, I know. I'm kidding. And I, and I also but, understand that you work so many years and you want to do it perfect. And there are implications for if you land smoothly or not. Yeah. I just No, you land smoothly. Like I remember because I was overseas and I saw it live. But, but I, that second where it crashed, it was the second where I turned my head to, because I was with friends overseas. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't focused on that. It was like, I'm going to land and clap, right? When it crashed, <laughs> I turned it up. I looked at it and I started getting pissed. Pissed off. Not because it's a success or failure. I don't think like that's the dynamics of it. But the story behind it, like yeah. there was more complexity. Like it was obvious for me, maybe because I'm a proud, you know, Jew or because I, I have faith in entrepreneurs or other countries did it before, that everything would go, yeah. you know, through the story. I think that's like, like the momentum I think that's a great excuse to do it. Sorry, this is not for a promotion. Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking to myself. It's a great excuse to do Bereshit 2. Why? Because the amount of people who are going to be involved in making it succeed this time will be multiply. I don't even know how much more because of the excitement. Because now it's probable that you can do it. Mm-hmm. Okay? It's feasible. It's approachable. And it's already known who the team is. So I think that base to do another one and inspiring children, like... Uh, that that would be a, a good uh, platform. Um, fear, last thing, you had this sentence that I loved in the middle that like I, I just I just don't know if I wrote it correctly. But did you say a founder is like a stem cell? Mm-hmm. Okay, you are what the organization needs you to be. Okay, I I love that. Just gonna ask you when you say that, do you mean that there's always holes in an organization that is building itself, right? When you have to get investors on. The founder has to be a sales guy. And uh, when he has to recruit, he has to be an HR guy. And after you recruit, you're missing, let's say, the programmer or the product guy. So you have to be a little bit of the product guy. And once you get the product guy, you're noticing that you have a different problem in, I don't know, the administration or the taxes or the accounting or the finance or anything else. And the founder, till it becomes a big organization, has to fill in those holes. 
Is that what you mean? So first of all, I give credit to Liraz uh, stealing my... Uh, of course, no, the founders. <laughs> no, no, you mean the one who said that sentence. Said that sentence. But yes, uh, totally. Uh, that's it. You know, if you think about it, it's just like a human body that eventually you have all, you have the fingers and you have, uh, I don't know, the hair. But it starts from, you know, a cell. One cell, so in, I don't know, with startups, with organization, it starts with three cells. There are those three founders. Right. And they need to, like, hold everything that the organization needs to do uh, until they actually build the organization and hire and the that, HR and sales. And, and after they hire everything, there's always that problematic area. So, so I think that there will probably be two potential options. One is uh, that they will hire, you know, the CEO and, and, and will go do something else. They solve problems somewhere else, or they will find places in the organization that needs, you know, that type of skill set. Places of, I don't know, inventing the next product, inventing something new, like solving something that is big for the organization that there is no recipe to solve. That's also a major difference. You know, if it's a, a, a recipe, a, something that you already have a recipe to solve it, or something you need to use like basic principles, like in order to understand what you're doing and to invent those recipes. And so everywhere you need to invent new recipes, but everywhere you don't have already, you know, a mechanism to solve that, that's where you need those funders. Amazing. Amazing. That's uh, a great sentence. Fear, um, I wish you the best of luck, by the way. Wookie um, sounds really exciting. Um, I'm actually really interested to hear more afterwards. And um, Bereshi too sounds even more exciting on a global level. <laughs> and, uh, and just keep on solving great problems. The, both of the problems that you're solving right now are, are really exciting. And, uh, and I hope for people to be inspired to solve as interesting problems as you are today. And next time we'll cover your kryptonite. Cool. <laughs> We got you off the hook this time. Sure. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Kvir. Bye-bye. Real. Live. Superpowers. Up in the sky! It's a bird! It's a plane! Gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. It's alive! Real. Live. Superpowers. Superpowers.